You are listening to Three Moves Ahead, the official podcast of FlashOfSteel.com, and this is episode 73. I am your host, Troy Goodfellow, and with me today is a is one of my regular panelists, a truncated regular panel today. We have freelance writer Rob Zachney. Good evening, all. Uh, Julian was going to be here, but he's on a business trip and could not make it. Tom's life continues to be crazy. Uh, we do hope we can have him on soon. And Bruce is, of course, busy saving lives. So we have Rob, but we can't do it with just the two of us. So I went to my very deep bench of help. And, of course, there's one person who could never say no to me. And that is my very, from Open Alpha, uh, the video blogger who was on our episode 52, a gender and gaming show, a good friend of the show. And a good friend of Flash of Steel, Miss Jen Cutter. Jen, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And that was one heck of an intro there. Got to give you the big intro because I haven't heard from you in a while. Uh, at least the people in the show haven't. Um, uh, so, Jen, why don't you just fill people in on where they can find you and what you're, what you're doing in case they've forgotten who you are. Oh, uh, gosh. I've been covering gaming since I was about 16. And uh, I used to be on a TV show up in Canada called Call for Help. And you can see me these days uh, on openalpha.tv, on hack5.org, hak5.org. And really, the best place to go is just my blog, which is jencutter.com. And that is Jen with two N's. It's very, very important. <laughs> very, very picky about my name. And, and you know, you'll get all my links to everything I do there. Uh, ten, today's uh, episode, tonight's topic, is something that we hope that uh, Jen covers some perspective in. It's on. It's a topic Rob suggested last week, and it's a good topic. And I really kind of wish we had a whole panel for this, because it's something that I tend to think about uh, as someone who is, I'm who is out as a gamer. I have no gamer shame. I'm not a, embarrassed to say that I game and that I've done it for a long time. Um, and the question Rob asked is, well, what's are the formative strategy game experiences for us? What makes us strategy gamers? What turned us into strategy gamers? What games uh, first scratched that itch and hooked us? Uh, Jen is not a strategy gamer, but has gamed a lot, and I'm sure will have some input into how this whole thing works. So, Rob, I'm going to start with you, because you came up with this topic. What were you thinking when you suggested it, and what was going through your mind uh, in your own personal experience to bring us to this yeah rob what were you thinking eh well i was thinking um <laughs> you know we need a topic and so here, here's i'm gonna spitball something uh but i was i was also thinking about i don't know i mean like where, where do where do strategy gamers where do strategy gamers come from really um is it just when two strategy gamers really love each other that a new strategy gamer is produced um no it's 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 more that i think you have to get bitten by the bug. Something has to grab you, and it, you know it's an acquired taste. And once you've got it, you're never going to get rid of it. You're always going to be looking for a game that sort of fills that uh, fills that void. And, and for me, the game that you know sort of changed my perspective on what I wanted out of gaming um, was a game by Adrian Earle called Fields of Glory. Um, and it was this. I mean. It, it wasn't actually that that good a game, um, looking back on it. Uh, but it was a, it was a real time uh, tactical war game, just about the um, the Waterloo campaign, the Hundred Days. And what really what really seized my imagination, I was only like you know eight or nine at the time, um, was that it looked like army men come to life. And I, I've gone back and I've looked at screenshots of this game, like home of the underdogs. And I gotta be honest, like that's not the game I remember. 
Um, I think I was like, no, I I know the game you're thinking of, and no, it uh, it is not a pretty game. It isn't, but at the time, right? Like it's like 1991 or something like yeah. that. At the time, I looked at it, and, you know, in my head, I, I imagined that there was more there, and it was the it was these little these little um like miniature Napoleonic soldiers fighting across these battlefields. And to me, there were these lush, evocative landscapes, and they they really weren't. They were these really basic tile sets. Um, but it was also just full of so many cool period touches. Like you could read unit biographies of this and that regiment, like this Hanoverian musket regiment, these guys who were all black on the battlefield. They were the only regiment that looked like this. And all this flavor text that just really you know captured the mood and the spirit and the era. Um, and none of it really mattered. But it just it's one of those things where I didn't even realize this period in history existed. Like that was my first exposure to um, the horse and musket era. I knew nothing about it. And the moment I saw this game, I was like, I, I have to play that. And to me it was it was so real, it was so vivid, the battles were so incredible that I just you know, I never stopped looking for more games like that. Uh, and that's that's really where my wargaming habit began. That's the game I always returned to. So where did that lead? What was the next step after that? And that's a great game to think of. I remember it quite well, Fields of Glory. I'm surprised anybody else remembers it, actually. Uh, the old microprose game. Um, so what was the next step after that? And where do you go from there? Because there weren't a lot of Little Army Men games out there. Um, you know, there really weren't. Um, but, well, Adrian Earle went on to make another game um, in that vein. He made a game called... You know, I think it's, it was released under the name American Civil War, and there's probably a hundred games that have that exact title. But um, it was this really ambitious game. He kind of went for a Total War thing with it. And I remember it had this big write-up in um, PC Gamer, that this big preview. Um, and he promised the moon where it was going to be battles just as vivid as those in Field of, Field of Glory. But there's also going to be the strategic layer, right? Where it shows the eastern half of the North American continent, and you command the entire war effort. You know, you're raising regiments in Springfield and, um, you know, and Boston, or in Richmond, and you're sending them out, and you're creating armies, creating orders of battle, and you're sending them out to fight. And, you know, I mean, this game, this game was a complete disaster, and I guess it was formative in this way. This was the first time, it was the first game I ever realized that games can suck. <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, I, most of us probably can't remember the first time we realized that there was such a thing as a terrible video game, but I can. And th- the reason it sticks out is because I completely sold myself on this game. I completely sold myself on the hype when it was reviewed in Peace Gamer. It got like a seventy percent, seventy-five percent. And my dad was looking at me. He was like, "Are you sure this is you want what you want for your birthday?" And I grabbed the review score scale, right? And I was like, "Dad, look at this." <laughs> Seventy percent. That's a good game. That's a good game. He's like most games we get are like ninety, right? And I'm like seventy's good. You gonna look down on a good game? So I forced him to get me this game. And of course, what PC Gamer gently meant by good was fucking awful. Um, but so I, so I went into it, and for a while I was convincing myself that this game was a masterpiece, right? Like you know I'm commanding the entire Confederate States of America and fighting off the Yankees. Um, and then it slowly dawned on me that like the enemy was just charging across the map and getting mowed down single file. Their armies just sort of like milled around like zombie hordes. Um, 
And the strategic layer, like, I was winning the war by, like, 1862, 1863. It was bizarrely easy. And it was just the first time, you know, that's slowly creeping horror when you realize this game is not good. You know, the things you think it's doing, you were just convincing yourself it was doing them. But actually, it's all been in your head all along. And if you look dispassionately at it, this game is brain dead. And there's no real strategy involved at all. And that was really instructive. Right, because I mean, you learn more from bad games than good ones, and that was, you know, that was the first time. That was the first time I realized what separated a good strategy game, a good war game, from a bad one, or at least some of the things that separated them. And um, you know, I I took a lot of that knowledge with me into the rest of my gaming life. So, were you interested in history all this while you were your eight, you were nine, you were ten? You were really interested in military history anyway. Um. Or did Fields of Glory just look really cool, and then it made you think, oh, then that moved you onward? Well, I mean, I, I can't – like, let's not underestimate the influence of uh, George C. Scott's Patton in my, in my early life. Um, I saw that, and that, that pretty much fired my imagination. So I was, I was vaguely into military history. Okay. But it was, it was war games that really got me interested in – you know, true historical study. That's it's always been war games that have sort of served as my um, introduction to it to a topic. Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm also a strategy gamer. I'll follow right on that. And if you have any questions, anyone just pop them right in. Uh, because I didn't have a computer when I was growing up. Well, we had a Commodore 64 and. Played crappy, played some crappy games on that. Uh, there were many strategy games. Uh, my sister had a Tandy, and there were a lot of adventure games. I was an adventure gamer for a long time. You know, all the Sierra games, Leaves mm-hmm. Larry and King's Quest and Space Quest, all that fun stuff. I really didn't get into strategy games until I went to college. And one of my friends had a computer with, you know, tons of pirated software on it. Do not endorse it today, but in college... That was everywhere, especially in, you know, Fredericton, New Brunswick. You're not going to get a whole lot of games. Uh, the game shelf stores are pretty sparse, but the BBSs always had a good selection of stuff to download. Uh, thank God for the old BBS. And uh, the first game, I've mentioned this before, first strategy war game I really got hooked on was Harpoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great naval sim, uh, but the Cold War, uh, USSR versus NATO battling it out in the North Atlantic. Um, I'd never seen anything like this. Now, I was, of course, a political scientist, interested in international relations, loved politics and military stuff, always had, but it never occurred to me there'd actually be a game that would have all of this stuff on it. Uh, I was also into Tom Clancy, Red Storm <laughs> Rising, uh, Hunt for Red October, and here are all those, all those fancy weapons he wrote about with such sexual fervor. Um... I got to command them and launch missiles and bomb Keflavik. And Harpoon is, I mean, it stands out because it's still one of the great games, one of the best games I've ever played. Uh, despite, you know, the AI is not all that good. Um, it's too easy. The uh, long range missiles are far too accurate and too destructive. But it, it's really a game of hide and seek, of uh, getting, getting them before they get you. And it's a wonderful, wonderful, neat little game. And it was single player only. Um, and I remembered quite distinctly because, you know, I would go to my early morning class, come back to my friend's room. He would be sleeping through all of his classes. I don't think he graduated. I think he dropped out that year. 
Uh, he'd be sleeping till like noon or something. But you know, I was allowed to come in and start playing Harpoon. That was one thing. We the agreement was I was finished classes. I could go in and start playing games. Uh, Harpoon or Flight Sims, which I was also big into at the time. Lots of Flight Sims, which also scratched that. Harpoon scratched that itch too, because I wasn't just flying one plane. I was commanding all of them. Um, and Harpoon had just tapped into so many things I was interested in at the time. The Tom Clancy novels and international politics. And remember, this is 1989, 1990. The Cold War is done for all intents and purposes. There's no... It's, it's Harpoon was instantly nostalgia. And instantly obsolete. It's very bizarre. You have a game come out about you know NATO and the Soviet Union fighting each other, and well, sorry, the year before it comes out, everything's different. Uh, the Soviets aren't going to be uh, bombing Keflavik anytime soon, and all kinds of other battle sets came out after that. But Harpoon was the first one, uh, single player. That same year, I played a lot of Populous, and Populous is one of the best games ever made, and that 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 got my multiplayer itch going for strategy games we you know take some serial cords and tie two computers <laughs> together god we were so old school and uh just kill each other over and over again with volcanoes and swamps um and populace is of course not an historical strategy game it's not even a religious strategy game it is a game about your dude taking the land away from somebody else somebody else's dude um it is a brutal game uh so mean but there it is, and that really got me into the whole outthinking your opponent, um, recognizing the difference between a good AI and a bad AI. As Populous has some good AI since a bad AI, but it was never as good as a human. Um, I've seen AI advance so much in the last 10 years. It's still not great, despite what Julian said on last week's show. Uh, but it's Populous did that for me, and I'm, I mean, look, I've kind of like you, Rob. There's always been this historical thing in me somewhere and games have pushed me more in that direction i mean i play a game of the civil war then i want to read more about the civil war oh absolutely i play i play a europa universalis and i want to learn about the 30 years war and that's just how it is with me um so that's those are I guess, my formative strategy experiences if not my formative gaming experiences like i said i was an adventure gamer and i was still an adventure gamer for a very long time i even right up until mist Mist kind of killed me. That's it. Mist killed my love of adventure games right dead. Because uh, they, they, they weren't the adventure games I liked. I didn't like games like that. I didn't want to solve picture puzzles. I want to move a dude around and tie items together. And Yeah, it was all about LucasArts for me in adventure. Yeah. The kings of the genre. They were, the, and they're still the kings of the genre. Um, Loom, I think, is still one of the most beautiful games ever made. I want yeah, another no. Day of the Tentacle. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. That's what I want. Monkey Island, I love Monkey Island. I'm very proud of them for, for redoing what they've redone and with the yeah. episodes. But no, I want Day of the Tentacle. Let's bring it on. Now, Jen, your gaming tastes are much broader than mine or Rob's. <laughs> I, know, have... I hear you guys talk about these games, and I sort of remember other people talking about them. But yeah, never something that I experienced. And I think as a kid, had you presented me with these games, I would have said, no, that's homework. I'm going to go do something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's way too much work for me as a kid when I was a gamer. Harpoon, I can sympathize. <laughs> yeah. Populous, I think I might have been into, but uh, did not come across what? my desk at all. You never even played Populous? I have never played Pop. Look, I've never played The Sims, okay? Here's my, my big shameful secret. I have never, ever played any iteration of The Sims. You never played Civ either, right? No. 
you got it for me. So it's on my list. It's on my desk. <laughs> I did. I, I out of out of pity, I got it's like, you a ten dollar box copy. here. Play this now. <laughs> and you haven't. I haven't. Sounds like a rock band. What do you want? <laughs> as you do with all my gifts, just shove them off in the corner. Uh, so, but Jen, you've been playing games forever. Forever. I actually started before the NES. I started with an Intellivision. No one remembers Intellivision. It had like a little phone pad, phone pad, big a circle little, thing, a little disc thing. Yeah, it was terrible. Oh, it's like a wood paneled console. <laughs> I still have it because I keep everything. Um, but yeah, so my first experience with gaming actually came with uh, with Astro Smash by the Blue Sky Rangers. Uh, so asteroids fall out of the sky and, and you shoot them and then the sky changes colors as you do better. <laughs> Not a whole lot of plot involved, but uh, it actually used a little circle thing very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was designed well for the time. And I was basically playing in television games until about Mario 3 came out. And then, finally, my brother and I begged and pleaded and cried, and we finally got ourselves a Nintendo. Oh, God, you didn't get one until Mario 3? Not until Mario 3. Oh, the tears of rage I would have shed. Oh, well, we, we were, it was like, okay, you want to play hockey? You want to play video games? And, and that oh, was a really oh, yeah. unfair question. <laughs> so we played <laughs> hockey first, and then we got into, we, we, we finally got our, our NES later, but we were always at, at friends' houses playing uh, playing Zelda and playing Mario 2, and I would show them that Peach did not suck, well, Princess at the time, did not suck in Mario 2. She was very useful. Honest. I floated through the entire level. It was beautiful. So do you have any games you would point to as, say, formative experiences in how you understand or see games or see yourselves? Um, well, it's kind of tough. Um, back in the, in the days when you can't buy games for yourself, I would, my friends would give me a lot of, of sports games. So we'd ha- we had uh, you know, Blades of Glory. We had ice hockey. And like my brother and I liked them as entertainment, but we always thought, like, this is the world's crappiest game. What, who, who are they trying to fool with this? This isn't hockey. <laughs> this is not what it's like at all. So that was a... Even to this day, I still don't play a lot of sports games on the console just because, like, I can go outside and play the real thing. Why the heck would I sit here and do this? Uh, and so that was a, the first thing where it kind of showed me, like, okay, games are awesome, but to a point. They cannot recreate what you know to be true in, in real life. So games are getting better with that now. Like I, I'm hoping Connect will be good. I had a lot of fun with that at E3, and hopefully it will be used for more than dancing. Uh, but between that, like uh, I played a lot of PC stuff in the early days. Uh, I was a huge Commander Keen fan. Huge, huge, huge. I played all of them, no matter how bad they got as the years went on. I still love that. Just the idea of being a kid in a football helmet with a laser gun on another planet. I was there for that. That that was something I was interested in. Hmm. And it's such a huge topic too. Like you know, what makes you the gamer that you are? Like in the early days, you you are so dependent on your family being understanding or having a friend with rich parents who get them whatever they want. And then that's how you can get exposed to new games because magazines were expensive. Uh, Dial-up internet, you had to be very judicious about what BBSs you logged into and what was long distance and what wasn't because we all learned that lesson, didn't we? (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. What's a BBS? Oh, don't give me that. Uh, Before the internet. Pre-internet days. Uh, it was an online. Uh, you would, it was a, a server somewhere you would just dial into, and you could have a limited number of connections at a time, generally. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a, a. There were there were games or portal games. There were chat sites. Image boards. There were image boards. Illegal. Tor- the the early versions of torrents. Just you know places you could just download files. Just chat randomly. 
Hmm. Uh, BBSs were, I mean, if you were lucky, you'd have a, a university uh, lab, some computer lab somewhere, and you could go on, and you could play multi-user dungeons, MUDs, uh, were often run through BBSs. Um, the very so, first Memorpagers. Yes, Memorpagers. <laughs> Very first multi, uh, massive multiplayer online game. So BBSs were the first internet, the place where you could do a lot of multiplayer uh, in long-distance connections with other people interested in nerdy stuff. Yeah, not nerdy stuff, but generally, you know, if, if you knew... If you were on a BBS, you yes, were nerd. Like, yeah, let's yeah, face it. Yeah. Well, speaking of, like, other people are into nerdy stuff, like, I mean, did you guys have, like, any friend, any friendships that, like, centered on... On this hobby that you were discovering, like, did I, did did is there anyone you can point to and say, well, this is someone who had like a formative influence on my tastes and my outlook as a gamer? Well, I know in in college, I mean, we were dealing with a bunch of us discovering it all together at the same time. Uh, finally, computers were cheap enough that they could run a lot of this stuff, and your average college college student could actually go out and buy one. So that was a big deal. Um, so a bunch of us discovered all of these games at the same time, and this was, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. So you had Populous, and you had Civ, and you had Centurion, and you had all these flight sims, uh, and Harpoon, and all these wonderful experimental warlords, Darklands, games that really experimented with the form and pushed before genre boundaries really got defined. It was a great time to be learning about games because there's always something you'd never seen before coming out the next month. I mean, no one ever thought of. I mean, we'd sit around and say, oh, wouldn't it be a great, great to have a game where you could play all of human history? You know, next month, Civilization comes out. It's like, whoa, that's amazing. Um, so, but we discovered it all together. I mean, because I was in that generation of PC gamers where we were all in a group, and there, we didn't have a lot of magazines. There were a few floating around. There weren't a lot of stores where you could trust uh, the clerk to know what they were talking about. Um, so, no, it's when I was going through this, I was we were discovering it as a group, which I kind of, I think made it kind of special because you know we do. It was, a, it was an adventure game, something like Loom or a Monkey Island game. We we read Iron Man it. We'd sit there and we would play it all day. Uh, Love those and days. Yeah, and we'd solve it together as a group and going through puzzles and it was it was something. It was cool. See, I was the other way. I was I'm now the person that people go to when they want to know about games for themselves or for their kids or should my nephew be playing this? And the answer is generally no. Uh, but no, I, I my brother kind of gave up gaming pretty early on. He was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. If I'm like, I think it, around the PlayStation era, like he was still into it, but he was only playing because I really wanted somebody to play with. And my best friend was really into PC gaming and he was one of the first players for Sierra's The Realm online, which is now still going and run by somebody else. It's really, really old MMO. It's still going? It's still going. It's it's hysterical. We'll have to put a link up on the site so people I can will take definitely. a look. But uh, for me, gaming was, was definitely a solitary thing. None of my friends were into it. None of my teammates were into it. And I spend an ungodly amount of hours <laughs> on, a, uh, on the team bus or in a hotel or even on the bench with my Game Boy. <laughs> so I played every bad RPG that ever came out. If it was a on portable game, I had it. On the bench? You played? Oh, if you're, game a, if you're a backup goalie and uh, you oh. uh, really, really... Yeah, but my, I did not get along with my coach that year. <laughs> but generally, no, you don't do it on the bench. But on, in the hotel and definitely on the bus all night long, driving to Boston, driving to New York, driving in the middle of Philadelphia somewhere. <laughs> it's just it's a lot of driving. So you discovered gaming still 
very much on your own now, of course. You well, have now we have left the internet, and, right. and it's glorious, yeah. and I have my Xbox Live friends list, and I have IRC, and it's just awesome. <laughs> it's so nice <laughs> to be able to talk about gaming and have other people understand what you mean. What are you, Rob? Are you uh, in a community of gamers, or...? Um. Well, I mean, yeah, a little of both, really. Um, you know, I mean, my dad was actually a really good sport about getting me into strategy games. And, what, you know, one of the reasons he did, actually, is because Risk is so terrible. You know, Old Vanilla Risk is such a bad game. But I was always sort of in- interested in, the, like, war and conquest-themed games. And so I would force him um, over protest uh, to sit there and play Risk with me. Um <laughs> And I was I was young enough that like to me it didn't it didn't dawn on me that this was just all random dice rolls and there's like n- almost no strategy here whatsoever. My dad totally understood there was nothing to risk. Um, so finally he um, to sort of liberate himself from this trap he went out and got the um, the Avalon Hill catalog. Uh, this is this is you know before you know the bottom sort of drops out of that. Uh, so it's this is this big thick Avalon Hill. Um, catalog with you know all their titles and he's going through it and um you know we're trying to select you know what would be a good game for us to play and because i'm you know i'm a little kid so i just wanted the biggest coolest sounding board game ever so i read the description for third reich and I was like, "Oh my God, it's the entire war! Uh, we got to get Third Reich, Dad. We got to get Third Reich." And you know, remember, Avalon Hill has these ratings, these game ratings, right? Like, how many hours does it take to play? What's its complexity level? And he's looking at, it and he's like, "Yeah, I don't think we want Third Reich." Um, so he he talked me down to uh, Squad Leader. Um, and I guess you know that was probably the first really hardcore uh, war game. That, that I ever played, and you know, we didn't actually play that much of it together, uh, just because you know, he, he worked, and there's only so much time you can make for you know, squad leader. Um, but you know, I mean, that's that's an important game, and it made an impression on me. Like, it was the first game that really introduced me, introduced me to you know, the mechanics of a morale check and force multipliers, and you know, the, the phases of a combat turn. How do you, how do you translate? Because for me, it was all understood through the prism of war movies, right? Like, this was sort of like the stuff I was seeing in, in World War II movies, but it was translated to a board game. So it was, it, it was the first time I sort of looked at how a game was representing that experience through turn phases and mechanics. And, you know, that was, that was another, another important moment for me. And, I mean, from there, that, that definitely uh, sort of prepared the way for a game like Steel Panthers years later. And... If you know, if we're going to talk about you know influences, um, for me, I mean, my closest gaming friends were probably the guys in you know um, computer gaming world and PC gamer, because uh, you know I'm there in Northwest Indiana. There's not a lot of gamers around me, um, especially not when I was that young. So it was magazines really that kept me in touch with what was going on and people who were interested in what I was interested in, and uh, Bill Trotter. Um, you know, writing Desktop General, um, just introduced me to so many war games and pushed me right out of my comfort zone so many times. Uh, just because, I mean, he would, 
you know, he would take a corner on a game and he would say, you have to play this. And that's one of the things I loved about that old rating system, right? Is, you know, 90% or above didn't matter what genre you liked. 90% or above, the idea was if you liked gaming, you needed to play that game. And so, you know, Bill Trotter would, you know, point out a game like Steel Panthers and say, you don't have a choice. You have to play this. This is one of the best games ever made. Um, and it'd make it on my Christmas list, and I'd you know I'd read that review like twenty times before I got it. Um, you know, pretty much internalized the review, um, and got it, and yeah, just it just blew me away. Um, and he did a lot of games, like you know the Close Combat series, the Operational Art of War. Uh, he was always there to you know push me in that direction. Bill Trotter would be somebody to be great to have on this show. So if anybody out there knows where I can find Bill Trotter. I'd love to talk to him about how war games have changed, assuming he still plays them. Oh, he does. Even if he doesn't, a recap series would still be just fine. Yes. But, um, so if anybody knows where to break and find Bill Trotter, uh, or if he listens to the show, Bill, <laughs> call me. Well, if you get in touch with uh, Drummy over at the Wargamer, uh, he might be able to put you in touch, actually. That's entirely possible. Um so we've talked a lot about you know how strategy, how we get into different types of games, and how games define us, and you know how we even clue into these games are out there because I mean, we've said for strategy games now, and as Jen said, the internet makes everything e- easy. In fact, it's, it's almost too much out there. Every week, I'm being sent links to things I'd never heard of before. Um, so it's really hard to have that feeling of discovery when there's always something to discover. Um, but Something else that Jen said and that Rob said with the idea of you know having people around or not having people around, I've always held the position that everybody likes games. They just don't know what games they like yet. Is that your experience? That you know you can actually if you can find what types of games people like, like people might not like strategy games, but they might be able to find a strategy game that they like, or something else. Or am I just? Uh, opt- or am I just too optimistic in human nature? Well, it, it's the thing. It depends on what you mean by game. If, if you extrapolate that to like any kind of game in the world, then of course some people will like it. But when it comes strictly to video games, there are a lot of people who would sooner drop dead than pick up a controller. It's just they think it's completely beneath them. It's not what they're interested in. And they won't give it a shot, even if I know for a fact that there are a few games out there that they would love. It's yeah. just they have this bias and they aren't going to get past it. Which is why, even though a lot of people kind of frown on the Wii and and the Kinect and PlayStation Move, that is going to bring some of them into gaming. And, and because using your body is something that anybody can do for the most part. Yeah. And I have some people who aren't gamers who have, who have come up to me and said, like, oh, so you know, there's this camera thing. When's it coming out? I'm like, wow, how did how did you possibly hear about this? So it'll be interesting to see when that launches if it does change anything. And I don't think it'll be drastic. I don't think it'll be right away. But I always like when when new people get into gaming and, and discover this great history that we have now. Yeah, gaming is going through a bit of a, demog- a huge demographic shift right now, which I think is really good for the industry. First, you have all these mature gamers picking up relatively light Wii Fair or Connect stuff, but it still it gets them buying the consoles, at least thinking My about it. My mom bought a Wii. She asked me first. She's like, yeah, so I'm going to do this, this, and this. Should I get a Wii? Yeah, go for it. Have fun. And she does use it, too, which is nice. And at the same time, you have this generation of kids coming in who have always had gaming. It's always been a part of their lives. Those lucky bastards. And this idea that, you know, 
they have to pick and choose or that this is something that's really weird or not normal uh, is completely alien to so many of them, boys and girls alike, which I think is remarkable and awesome. Um, it would have been great to, you know, be in the high school. Well, actually, you could not pay me enough to be in high school again, but they're, their nerds are going through a better time than I, I had growing up, that's for sure. <laughs> I... I don't know. I mean, like, I, I think it's definitely easier for them. But I, I'm curious if you guys have noticed this. But, like, with my nieces and nephew, you know, they're into gaming. They play games. But it's like it doesn't really matter to them. It's just another leisure activity, right? It's just another thing they can do. It's another time waster. Absolutely. And they, don't, they do not yeah. form the relationship I formed with games and gaming. Um, and, you know, I get, you know, I get them stuff every Christmas. You know, you know oh, you love this. And I'll, you know. But there's not a game in their collection that I could point to that I would say this has really grabbed them. Um, you know, there's games they like, there's games they don't like, there's nothing they feel passionately about. And to mm-hmm. me, that's foreign because me and my gamer friends, like there were always games, you know, get us, wind us up, let us go. Um, you know, games were where it was. And for, for my niece's nephew, it's just, it's, it's, it's a little devalued. You know, you raise an excellent point there. I'm actually going away with a couple of my cousins at the end of the month. And and they give me a call like, oh, yeah, so we're going to bring uh, the 360 and the Wii. And if you can bring your rock band and this and that and the other thing, it's like, guys, we're, we're going to be at a cottage and there's canoes and there's kayaks and we're getting, to, we're getting a boat and there's all this kind of awesome stuff. And you're bringing consoles. Like, even I'm thinking like, okay, guys, really, you know, chill. Let's go outside. <laughs> but, uh, but, like, they are happy with rock band. They're, they're into whatever the shooter of the month is. And that's it. I think I think they picked up Madden once or twice, but it's a very, very small gaming collection. And I'm actually hesitant to call it a collection because for people like us, we're kind of less likely to trade in games. And for you PC gamers, you obviously have never traded in a game in your life because you can't. Uh, but for them, it's completely disposable. They will pick it up, they will play it, they will trade it in for the next best thing and completely forget about it. Whereas there are games where I would sell my car before I would sell the game. <laughs> Well, it's also the fact that there are just so many games coming out now. Uh, it's just a constant, there's a new big release every month. When we were, you know, going through our periods of love of gaming, and we are trying to build these attachments, uh, games were something special because there weren't that many big titles every year. Games were my friends. <laughs> well, oh, it's so think- sad. <laughs> do you think there's also a bit of the, um, I don't know, the... the, the- I think the sense of discovery maybe has been lost a little bit. Like, you know, what, what we're going back to, what you were saying earlier, um, you know, how there's always people on the internet talking about this game and that game and telling us what we should play and what's out there. Oh, and you know, the whole game all, before it's released. Right, and we're all obscenely informed. And, uh, you know, I mean, let's not underestimate the the joy of having discovered something for yourself. You know, it's your secret. It's you found this. Uh, Fields of Glory wasn't a particularly good war game, but damn it, if I didn't go into Babbage's and find it myself. I picked that, and I had this experience that almost nobody else I knew ever did. And to me, that you know, that made gaming a little cooler, a little more meaningful. I remember when somebody handed me Civ. It was like, you should try and play this game. And that was my introduction to Civ. Somebody found that for me. Somebody got the privilege of introducing someone else to civilization. And I think for modern gaming, you just sort of exist in, you know, this, this almost like deafening conversation that never stops. I think that's one way that strategy gaming kind of has, still has that thrill of discovery a little bit. Yeah. Because the covers, it's not covered as much. 
there isn't as much detail. I mean, for the larger titles, yes, but I mean, something like Distant Worlds can come along pretty much out of nowhere. You know, nothing about it besides, hey, Tom sends me an email, you should really check out Distant Worlds. And I check it out, and there is something special going on there, because it's not a game that the Kotakus and the G4s and the Game Pros are going to be raving about uh, for 12 months before it comes out. Um, oh, previews. <laughs> yeah, previews and interviews and screenshots and open betas and all this great stuff. I mean, I love seeing all the stuff from Elemental, Stardock's upcoming uh, magic strategy, fantasy magic strategy game coming out uh, next month. All the details and the open beta trickling out and all the information. It's great to get such a view of the development process. But I feel like I've played it already. I've seen so much. I know I haven't, and I know that I really can't form a judgment on it till I do. But it's, you know, it's marketing to the point of saturation. And I think, you know, there is some of that discovery, and it's a strategy. I'm, I'm big into exploration, as all my favorite strategy games are about exploration and pushing back the black and uncovering new lands. And you know, a little bit of surprise is great. I mean, Europa Universalis, the first Europa Universalis game, I just stumbled upon it at work. I was at work doing some in 2000, my first job out of graduate school, doing public policy consulting, just idly surfing the internet um, on some downtime. I was allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't breaking any rules. I was allowed to do it. And well, they're not going to turn around and fire you now, Troy. Well, no, but in case someone wonders if I wasted my life, wasted that that year <laughs> before I moved to Maryland. Um, and I just stumbled upon the forum for... Paradox's forum for Europa Universalis, and it was this game they'd never heard of before. But apparently everyone in Europe had been playing it for months. So, of course, then I went just on a huge search for it, trying to find any information on this game. And, of course, it came out in North America in spring uh, 2001, and I was there first day, and I bought it. Um, big, huge black box, and I played it for that entire weekend. I just went nuts playing it, um, nonstop. And... You can still get that from time to time. You can't get that in a Paradox game now, of course. Now Paradox is, you know, doing AARs and blasting out the emails and all of that. But there's that you know, sense of, well, this is something I hadn't heard of, and it's neat. And strategy gaming still has a little bit of that. Do you feel oversaturated, Jen, with news? Because you play, you play a lot of strange stuff. I'm all over the map. And, and yeah, I do. Uh, like for the last couple of years, when I, I, I took some time off and, and I went to school for a bit, and... I, basically distanced myself from the whole PR machine. So I wasn't getting any press releases. I was just talking to basically like you guys and a few other friends on the internet and playing games that way. And it was nice and quiet and peaceful, but it felt weird because I was so isolated. And it's weird to be in a dorm for the first time in my life. And I'm thinking, awesome, I'm in a dorm. I can get people to game with any day of the week and nobody, nobody. It wasn't until I finally broke down and bought Rock Band that I was able to get other people to game with me. (laughs) So it took like six months of begging and then Rock Band came out and I finally had a gaming social circle. But it was basically, you know, gaming and drinking because I wanted to drink and play Rock Band, but... You have to, you have to, you have to drink when you play rock band. Oh, yeah, apparently. <laughs> so for people who like drinking, then yeah, go get rock band. Yeah, but you were in a dorm and nobody played games. Nobody played games. There was one guy down the hall on the third floor who also had a PS3, and then there was another guy on the fifth floor who had his friend's Xbox there for a while, and I think there was one more guy with a PS3. 
but that was it. And th- this was a dorm for all ages and uh, all, all disciplines. And there were a lot of computer science people in this dorm and not that many gamers. It was, I, was, I was crushed. I was absolutely crushed to get there, to be so excited and then find out, nope, I'm still a loner. Awesome. Yay. That is so weird. It was it was very very weird. But you were saying about how do I feel inundated with the information again? Yes, I do. There's a lot of games. Where it's like okay, I know this 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 and this. Therefore that. So I'm going to skip it and go play something else. And which isn't fair. I want to give all these games a shot, and I want all games not to come out the same week every time. <laughs> so it's like oh good, here's six games that I have to pick which order I'm going to play in. Like I still have Split Second and one of the 8 billion Prince of Persia's on my uh, on my table, on my system, but instead it's like, no, I'm going to play something fun. I'm going to go play Red Dead and Lego Rock Band and DDR. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, there is so much coming out all the time. So there, was, there, was, there was one month earlier this year where just, it seemed like every week there was another great big AAA release that was the new best game of the year. It's really hard to keep up. Like, like even freelancing, where you kind of set your own schedule, like you wind yep. up having to write down on a calendar what game you're going to play on what day, yep. and how many hours, and how long you think it'll get you through okay. this. And all I was stuff. so depressed the day I created a Google Calendar for games. Oh man, I still I'm oh using markers. Google sad. Calendar, that's that's hardcore. I haven't gotten that far yet. I'm generally pretty good at scheduling my game time. Yeah, I can't uh, even tell what day of the week it is. <laughs> I'm one of those people who needs to write things down. No, yeah, I haven't touched Red Dead yet. I should probably start playing that tomorrow because uh, it looks like I might end up writing an article on it. Um, so that's... But yeah, it's... Games are... so. I, mean, I think strategy games are pretty important to my life at this point. I think about it. I mean, this is... I don't make a great living doing this, but apparently, I apparently people want to listen to me talk about it, which is something. Uh, strategy games are, you know, probably the big professional thing in my life and the big entertainment thing in my life. I mean, that's what I spend most of my time doing is playing strategy games or RPGs, um, mostly strategy games. I still haven't played Rain: Conflict of Nations beyond the opening turns because I'll be damned if I have a clue what's going on in it. But I want to. I want to figure out Rain, Conflict of Nations. I want them to start naming them a little more creatively, is what I want. This will help me tell them apart in the future. Oh, God, I know. It's always it's... blank, blank of blank. It's like, oh. Yes, I know. <laughs> Again. Again with that. Hearts of Iron, Conflict of Nations. Yeah, it's pretty lame. Uh, so that's... I mean, strategy games, I think, I would say, have shaped me in the fact that it's something I ended up covering uh, because, for some reason, people thought I had interesting things to say about it. Steve Bauman, uh, editor for Life at Computer Games Magazine, uh, still the best editor I've ever worked for, uh, thought I had something to say and so hired me to do it. And since then, people have generally agreed with his evaluation of my talent, if not my opinions. Um, but Rob, you, you, you freelance and you write about more than strategy games. Your stuff for The Escapist really roams all over the place. Uh, rather as the escapist itself does, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't strategy games really that made me start start writing about them. They weren't that the first genre I had I had anything to say about. But I think if you're a strategy gamer, you know, when you're a writer, you're looking you're looking for things that people aren't talking about, right? Yeah. 
Well, if you're a strategy gamer, you're always going to be looking at the conversation <laughs> and being like, wait, why the hell are people not talking about this? Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, the pitches just flow like water. Because um, nobody will listen. Yeah, that's, well, there's the downside. You're a gamer and writer and videographer, Jen. How do they all overlap? Uh, well, uh, initially, it's funny, my parents actually said, like, yeah, you, we kind of figured you'd like games because you're really competitive. But that's not it at all. I, I actually hate competition. <laughs> it sounds stupid for someone who was, you know, a semi-pro athlete for so long. I hate competition. I will always play for fun instead of playing seriously uh, every chance I get. I, I fell into gaming because I like the control aspect of it. I like that this is my world and I get to dictate what goes on based on how good I am. And I love that. Like, the open-world games that we have today are obviously worlds ahead of where we were back then. But if I wanted to play Commander Keen without firing my gun and just jumping a pixel before I'm about to hit them, then I, I had that control. It was just whatever I wanted to do, however I wanted to play, I could play. And, oh, man, when I got a Game Genie, it was on. I was up all night making codes for everything in the world. I had probably could have printed my own books on the subject. <laughs> So, but it's that control that I like. It's the skill-based aspect of it that I like. I like getting better at something for myself. The fact that we have gamer score and trophies and all that is is nice too. But I just like giving myself these little challenges and beating them that way. Achievements mean nothing to you. <laughs> oh no, I'm still an achievement <laughs> whore. <laughs> I was up all night doing the uh, the extended set list for uh, for like a rock band with the Evo finals going on in the background. It was really perfect because. Lego Rock Band's nice and colorful, so I can be watching the uh, the finals between, uh, between Ricky and uh, and Daigo. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see what colors I had to hit on Rock Band. <laughs> so it was perfect. <laughs> but yeah, but, but because know- of, of that, that drive to do things better, I, I fell yeah. into talking to the internet so that my friends would stop telling me to shut up. And from there, I made some great friends, so I learned how to you know, set up a shot. I slowly learned how to do some lighting and make sound that doesn't suck, and how to edit and how to encode and upload and post and everything that goes along with that. So it's been a wonderful learning journey, and I've actually made money editing videos for other people on the side, so it's been a life skill. And soon you'll be writing more, which Yes, is I will. I can't wait to start plugging that stuff as it starts appearing in the wild. You know what? What do for you? What what is that? What what is the, that factor that makes a game capture and fire the imagination? Like if if you were looking to get someone hooked today, if, if you were looking to hook yourself, for instance, today, um, what what qualities would would you look for in a game that would appeal to a young you? Wow. Some of us are still young. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I mean, I've changed so much since college. I mean, my tastes have changed. Um, I, I mean, I still like strategy games. I still like role-playing games. But, I mean, how you would approach me with something would be quite different. Um, right now, I mean, I'm in this phase of game of because I've been writing about games for so long. My mindset is already in a place where what is the interesting mechanic? What is the new thing this game is showing me? I mean, that's something that really tweaks my brain. Uh, that's one reason why I think I like Hearts of Iron 3 more than most people do. I did when it came out because it showed me so many interesting new mechanics and interesting way of doing things. And that's something that gets my brain thinking. Uh, but that's come out of many years in gaming. Um, as for, so I'm not even sure how, you would even, uh, how I could answer that question. My brain has been irrevocably altered uh, by 20 years 
of nonstop attempts at conquering the world. <laughs> and but that's kind of that's kind of what I was getting at there, though. Is, is I wonder. I mean, do we do we lose touch to our detriment? Do we lose touch with the things that originally brought us here? Or do we fall victim to the connoisseur's dilemma, right? Where where you forget what is appealing, what would have appealed to you when you were a kid, what a game would. I, have I don't know. I, mean, I think I, I think I can still be reached that level, and the best example of that is, is Demigod, uh, a game from Gas Powered Games uh, last year. This huge, big brawler. Um, and that game, when we played it in beta, it was very slow and a bad internet connection. But there was something about it that instantly grabbed me. Um, and it's a very simple, basic game. You run around with one big thing, and you capture towers, and you beat the hell out of the other guy. And this is the type of game that I would have just loved. And it's it's a real-time strategy game, but it's, you know, it's uh, very... Uh, much like um, what is it? Dota. It's a defense of the ancients <laughs> type thing, and that's that's great. And and it's not a game I can look at and say, well, this is the interesting mechanic it has. It's a great big dude beating the shit out of stuff. <laughs> I mean, how is that not appealing? Uh, so I think I can't still be reaching that level. Um, but I mean, if you couldn't, I you could have sold the old me on Europa Universalis easily. But you would have had to say different things to him than you would to me. Hmm. I think if I were to go back and give younger me a game that I could guarantee that that, that she would have loved, and it's kind of I'm looking through my game shelf now to think like, oh gosh, what would I have done? What would I have? What would I have given myself? And uh, surprisingly, I'm thinking like, oh my god, that game is perfect. It would either have to be Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Four: Turtles in Time, mm-hmm. the perfect. Uh, uh, sticking with SNES, because NES, we all know, Mario 3 beats all. Uh, but for SNES, I also would... I still think people today would still love this game. Uh, Mystical Ninja Goemon. The first the first one on the SNES. Legend of the Mystical Ninja. I have no idea what that oh, is. It, it was great. It was, it was you and your buddy going around, kicking butt. There was a story. It was side-scrolling, kind, kind of beat-em-up. And so, like, there was a story, there was an economy, uh, it was really fun, really cartoony, really bright, never took itself seriously, had some difficult stages, but it just, it was the whole package, and it was such a surprise, because one of those things where a video store was going out of business and was dumping everything they had, so, like, we'll take this and this and this and this, so we got, like, nine games for 20 bucks, and this was a huge haul, and... And we found that game by accident, and it goes back to that discovery. I knew nothing about it. My brother knew nothing about it. Turned out we could both play together at the same time, which was also great. And it was just a wonderful game that now I'm probably going to have to go and play again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to look for Fields of Glory as soon as this show is done. Uh, So, Rob, what about you? You want to answer your own question? I don't know. I I just, for me, I think I'd... I'd have to to look back, and and I'd say that I, I would find games that were... You know, colorful and evocative. And if I if I had to pick games that you know to give the younger version of myself, you know, aside from the games that I already mentioned, um, you know, I mean, much you know, as much as I as much as I rag on it, I I think that um, the Total War games would totally have been up my alley as a kid too, for the exact reason, uh, just the spectacle of it, the sense of you know period and place, um, you know, and a game like. You know, a game like the War- anything from the Warcraft series, really, uh, yeah. with those great voice actors. Oh, and, wonderful! You know that fantastic music and the, the simplicity and the spectacle of it. Um, that 
made learning strategy really painless. Um, it was just you know an exciting, cute game to play. Um, you know, I think I, I think I the more distance I get from that, the more I tend to fall into the trap maybe of looking down my nose at simpler games. Um, and I and I and I do worry sometimes that I forget that. You know what you need to get someone into the hobby is very different sometimes from what some of my current taste thinks is required to make what I would call a good game. I think that's true. I don't know. I like when stuff explodes and it's bright and colorful, so I can't say my tastes have changed that much. <laughs> it's like, wait, you're giving me a really big gun and I get to shoot stuff? Okay, let's do it. Yeah, I've never really gone for for, for nuance. <laughs> <laughs> That's not quite true, is it? Well, you've seen me play uh, Rise of Nations, so you know I'm not terribly uh, skilled and patient. <laughs> ah, well, we'll get you playing more RTSs later, and then we'll see how that works. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to have a classic game analysis, and this time we're going to move a bit away from the strategy realm. We're going to look at the action RPG Freedom Force uh, from Irrational Games. We're going to try to get a guest from Irrational to join us, uh, a couple of names on the list, to talk about uh, Freedom Force, the comic book setting, and are there any lessons that strategy gamers can bring from both the setting and the surprising both success and some could say from somewhat failure of the Freedom Force series. Uh, to local uh, listeners, by which I mean people in Northern Virginia, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., I have been promising a Three Moves Ahead Flash of Steel gathering. And I have chosen uh, August the 14th, that's a Saturday, still going to choose the location and the time, but the date is selected for August 14th, the Saturday. Um, if that doesn't work for you, uh, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm <laughs> nice looking. Setup. I'm looking at a late afternoon uh, or early evening thing, uh, or maybe even a, maybe even a lunch thing at a downtown Washington D.C. location, because that way we can draw people from suburban Maryland and suburban Virginia in, uh, and not having to force everyone out to go to Silver Spring. As much as I love Silver Spring, um, if you want to carpool and work things out with other listeners, uh, you can. I'll have a post on the forum in a couple of weeks' time. And you guys can all work that out. Um, I think that's it. Anything else to add? No. No, you're, you're keeping me from Mystical Ninja here, so let's wrap this up. <laughs> uh, Jen, so glad you could join us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for uh, having someone from the non-strategy camp over for this. You know you're always welcome. Rob, thanks for the topic, and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Good night, everyone. <laughs>